The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. Homes.com knows that when it comes to home shopping, it's never just about the house or condo. It's about the home. And what makes a home is more than just the house or property. It's the location and neighborhood. If you have kids, it's also schools, nearby parks, and transportation options. That's why Homes.com goes above and beyond to bring home shoppers the in-depth information they need to find the right home. And when I say in-depth, I'm talking deep. Each listing features comprehensive information about the neighborhood, complete with a video guide. They also have details about local schools with test scores, state rankings, and student-to-teacher ratio. They even have an agent directory with the sales history of each agent. So when it comes to finding a home, not just a house, this is everything you need to know, all in one place. Homes.com. We've done your homework. My mission is simple, to make you money. I'm here to level the playing field for all investors. There's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise to help you find it. Mad Money starts now. Hey, I'm Kramer. Welcome to Mad Money. Welcome to Kramerica. Other people want to make friends, I'm just trying to make you some money. My job's not just to entertain you, but to educate and teach you. So call me at 1-800-743-CNBC or tweet me at Jim Kramer. Even when the averages are roaring, with the Dow gaining 213 points, as it be rising 0.81%, NASDAQ advancing 0.70%, I find that the action could be incredibly frustrating. Take today. Some trucking company barely makes the quarter, and its stock soars, while the banks blew away the numbers and got zero credit. I find it's enough to drive you insane. Yet we see this kind of thing over and over and over again during earnings season. The culprit? Expectations. It's always expectations. First, let me set the stage. Going to this weekend, everyone feared that we'd get some horrible news out of Syria, huge missile strike that might hit some Russian military advisors. We also worried about what former FBI James Comey director would say in his big Sunday night interview. As it turned out, no Russians were killed. And while the Comey interview was entertaining, there was nothing in it that would trigger a constitutional crisis. So with these two pitfalls out of the way, we knew the market was going to power higher today. Washington receded, allowing earnings to come to the fore, and one's in a bear market mode, but the one we care about's in a bull market mode. But that's where the wackiness begins. First, Bank of America reported a spectacular quarter this very morning with fantastic earnings growth. Came right on the heels of the amazing numbers we heard on Friday from J.P. Morgan and Citi. And what happened? No one seemed to care. At one point, the stock was actually down today before rebounding in the afternoon, but nothing much to show. I read over every bit of info, just like I did for J.P. Morgan and Citigroup, but I kept thinking, wait a second, this is ridiculous. These are precisely the kind of quarters that I dreamed of. They're fantastic. Yet the banks can't seem to get any credit. These financials are making a fortune every time they turn the lights on in the morning. They pay you very little for your deposits, and then they turn around and invest your money at a risk-free rate that's much higher. So what's the problem? 
Honestly, there is no problem. Sure, lending wasn't super strong, but it was good enough. Yes, investment banking could have been better. But that misses the whole point. For years, all we ever heard is that what matters with banks is how big their net interest margins are, the differential between the meager amount they pay you and the large amounts they get on their risk-free investments. Now they are putting up huge net interest margins, and uh, it doesn't matter. Investors want to see outsized, risky, low-margin loan growth. I say give me a break. The issue is simply that these stocks, all the bank stocks, ran going into the quarter. They've been fantastic performers. So when they reported, we just said, so what? Thanks for nothing. We needed every item to be better than expected after these moves. Expectations, too high. Here's why this is stupid. It's not like the banks were priced for perfection, actually. The banks are among the cheapest stocks in the market, which is why I keep telling you I like them. They traded a fraction of what we pay for always competitive consumer products companies like a Colgate, a Clorox, a Coca-Cola, even a Kraft Heinz. The banks have better, much more consistent growth in these companies. In many cases, they have better balance sheets. They can buy back more stocks. Citigroup purchased 7% of the share count last year and said they'll do it again this year. They can increase dividends rather large. That's awesome. Yet because the bank stocks ran the quarter, the market doesn't seem to care about their amazing earnings. Is the market wrong? Well, for the short term, uh, no, I, you can't. It's, it's telling you that it makes sense. But for the long term, we have four banks, Citigroup, Bank of America, J.P. Morgan, Wells Fargo, four national banks. And, uh, and the first three just slammed it out of the park. The fourth was hobbled by regulation. By the way, I think Morgan Stanley and Goldman Sachs, the latter of which I own for my charitable trust, as I do J.P. Morgan City, could behave the same way. They've run too much going into their numbers, and that could be the kiss of death. But now let's consider the other side of the trade. You know what led this market today? The trucking company that is J.B. Hunt. It reported a barely in-line number. I didn't even focus on it for Squawk on the Street because it seemed so unimportant. I looked at the research, and it wasn't much different. Get a load of this headline from Deutsche Bank. First quarter, first look, not as bad as feared, end quote. And that's from a buy recommender. Or how about this one from BMO? First quarter 2018 results in line, revenue beat, but higher cost limit operating leverage. How much should this stock be down, huh? However, by midday, when I looked at the biggest winners and losers, I saw the banks in the loss column. And the winners, the winners, the transports, led by none other than J.B. Hunt up 6%. How the heck did this happen? First, I looked at the chart, and it's crystal clear that banks, that people were expecting really bad news here from J.B. Hunt. It had traced out a dreaded head and shoulders formation, the most negative pattern in the book. People expected pain. A house of pain. A lot of shorts in the name. Second, there was one line item in the whole quarter that actually did stand out, and that's called spot loads. Uh, which has to do with non-contract demand, they showed a surge of 43%. So even though the quarter was nothing to write home about for sales or earnings, the opposite, say, of J.P. Morgan and Bank of America, the fact there's such fabulous short-term demand is a real shocker. The pin action... Well, this number was extraordinary. Trucking stocks soared. FedEx, UPS, XBO Logistics, Zoom. The rare ones had one of their best days in ages. All aboard! None of these stocks have been acting well of late. The consensus was that these businesses were softening. Because of that expectation, the whole group roared higher off of a single positive line item from an unimportant trucking company with a blah earnings report. And that's merely one example among many. The drugstore and drug distributor stocks have been horrendous since we learned that Amazon wanted to break into this business. All the distributors have been hammered down relentlessly. 
Anyone who bought Walgreens or CVS when they reported very fine quarters was blown out of the water because of fears about the Death Star that is Amazon. Today was the revenge of the drug pushers. When we found out that Amazon has decided not to get into the pharmaceutical game, the drugstores and the wholesalers caught fire. All the buyers cared about was the fact that Amazon is not trying to put them out of business like it did the bookstores and the record stores. Talk about a low bar. Or how about this one? Drove me crazy. Costco. Last week, Costco shot the lights out with its monthly sales uh, store figures. Uh, same store figures. Yet no analysts made a big deal out of those same store figures. Then today, Wells Fargo said pretty much exactly what I said to myself. And boom! Costco screamed higher. Bye, 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 bye. Same thing with Ulta Beauty. I actually recommended Ulta Beauty to you March 22nd, saying that it gotten way too cheap because it's beloved by, it's beloved by its customers and integral to my look-your-selfie-best thesis. Today, Guggenheim, a research firm, upgrades Ulta from hold to buy, saying that after meeting with management, doing a survey, the stock has gotten too cheap and it's time to buy. The only difference I can see between Guggenheim's recommendation and mine, the stock was nearly eight points lower when I told you to buy it. Look, of course, periodically, a stock that has run still has more gas in the tank. If it simply reports numbers that so exceed a hyped up consensus that it has to go higher. And that's what happened tonight with Netflix, which I told you after all these upgrades, obviously something great is afoot. Still, here's the bottom line. If you're sitting on a down and out stock with a real bad chart, you may want to hold on at this point as analyst upgrades or an inline quarter could actually come to your rescue. Yes, an inline quarter. Uh, and if you're sitting on a stock that's rallied gigantically ahead of the quarter, even if the company delivers great numbers, it may not matter short term as we've seen with the banks, which to me remain terrific buys, but sure don't look like it to those who've been dumping these stocks hand over fist, as if they severely disappointed the consensus, and they didn't severely disappoint the consensus. Something that's plain, palpable, and true. Walter in North Carolina. Walter! Hey, Jim. Bullia from North Carolina. There we go. What's up? Thanks for taking the call. Of I course. watch the show every day and have for many years. Thank you very much. We love that. What's up? In the last two trading days, after four financial firms reported their first quarter results, all financial stocks showed sizable gains, only to reverse them and show sizable losses by the closing time, although they did have a slight recovery today. This volatility concerns me. My question, Jim, in your professional opinion, why are all the financial stocks so volatile? And are they a hold, buy, or sell? All right, let's take the case of J.P. Morgan, probably the best quarter I've ever seen, J.P. Morgan. I mean, what happens, the stock is up from, say, 100 to 115, where uh, jacked up to when it first reported, and then came down. Why? Because these stocks have been a place that people were hiding, including me, betting that they would be better than expected. Uh, they were better than expected on one line. Some people didn't like other lines. Here's my take. You're getting a chance to get back in if you missed it. Remember, J.P. Morgan this day two weeks ago was at 180, then ran to 110. Now it's, and then it ran to 115. Now it's back to 110, never hit out 108. If it gets to 108, holy cow, a second chance. Robert in New Jersey, Robert. Hi, Jim. How are you doing? I am good. How about you, Robert? Just fine. I'm calling about Thor Industries. I'm in the house of pain here. This thing is dropping like a stone. 
It's got a great backlog, as you know. Right. Uh, it's doing really well. It seems the market's treating this like a cyclical stock, and nobody's going to be buying uh, RVs anymore, even though the age range is, you know, all over the place. They've got people of all ages buying, and their sister stocks are doing the same thing, like Winnebago. What do you see uh, happening, and is there an end to this uh, Stock just dropping like crazy. Okay, uh, you know what? You're dead right. And what's happened here is in the last six weeks, people have done some surveys indicating that there is too much supply and not enough demand. That is rather amazing, but people did ramp up supply because the demand had been so great. So there's an imbalance. Uh, I want to hear from Thor because I want to know whether it really is as bad out there as all these surveys indicate. But understand that you be now, uh, what you expect to have happen is Thor says something negative, stock gets hit again, and then you can buy. But Right now, we are waiting on Thor. How about Lynn in Florida? Lynn! Booyah, Jim, from sunny Naples, Florida. Oh, man, don't tell. My wife wants to move there. Let's go. Let's go. What's up? Uh, oh, it's great. Hey, my husband wants to add to our position in KMI. So with earnings coming out this week, uh, what do you think? You know, have they shed enough debt? And What's the impact if they walk away from the Trans Mountain Pipeline deal? Um, well, you know what? That's a, that would be negative. They need the growth. But you know what? I, I really hate to say this. I've talked about good stocks that I've done. I, I sold Magellan Midstream Partners quite poorly, and the stock has just been on a tear. Uh, I think that the right now the pipeline companies, uh, it's too low. They're obviously KMI I'm not a fan of, but they are trying to bottom. And if they're trying to bottom, I can't tell you to get out. Uh, MMP, ever since Mr. Mears came on, straight up. That was a good guess. That was one week ago. He told a great story. Expectations have a lot more to do with your holdings than you think. So hold on to your stocks that have had some bad charts. Maybe a surprise comes to your rescue at this point. Man Money Tonight, why this market won't have you saying, thank God it's Friday anytime soon. Then a fight is breaking out in the aisles of office supply stores. I'll tell you how the maker of Sharpie markers and Papermate pens is handling a proxy fight. And I'm sitting down with Vistra Energy CEO after his $1.7 billion merger close to see how it could energize the company and maybe your portfolio. So stick with Kramer. Don't miss a second of Mad Money. Follow at Jim Kramer on Twitter. Have a question? Tweet Kramer. Hashtag Mad Tweets. Send Jim an email to madmoney at CNBC.com or give us a call at 1-800-743-CNBC. Miss something? Head to madmoney.cnbc.com. So we got through another weekend unscathed. Now we have to contend with another weekend. On Friday, the averages got taken to the woodshed as we had a lot to worry about. We were waiting on President Trump's decision whether to launch an attack on the Assad regime in Syria for gassing its own people. We were concerned about what former FBI Director James Comey would say on his 2020 interview. And, of course, there was also the powder keg of the FBI raid on presidential confidant, lawyer, and spokesperson Michael Cohen's office. We didn't have long to wait on Syria as the president attacked three chemical weapon facilities with the help of Britain and France. 
Comey interview wasn't great for the White House, but there was nothing in it that I would describe as uh, enough to rule the markets. And it's looking like Michael Cohen's files will be more of a slow burn kind of story. So the market breathes a sigh of relief and rallies today. But here's the problem. None of these issues is actually resolved. First, not long after the missile strike, Syrian President Bashar al-Assad was seen yucking it up with Russian advisors about how limited Trump's response was. The Syrian civil war went right back to business as usual the next day. Second, Comey's now going to go on a book tour where you have to assume he'll roll out new uh, details, right, and revelations every day. He's got to jit up some publicity. And third, the Cohen news flow hasn't even started yet. They're still going through the files, and however this plays out, it's going to be destabilizing for the Trump administration, which translates into bad news for the stock market. In other words, not one of these situations is over. So what does it mean? I'll tell you, it means we're going to have to deal with this backdrop against earnings every day and twice on Saturdays and Sundays. Yep, I think it'll be an overhang because the stock market hates chaos. And given the nature of these challenges to President Trump, you have to worry that chaos is what we're going to get. Plus, do we really think that Attorney General Jeff Sessions, Deputy Attorney General Ron Rosenstein and Special Prosecutor Robert Mueller are all safe? Sure, they might be. But the specter of a Nixon style Saturday Night Massacre is going to be with us for some time. In many ways, you know what, this reminds me of what things were like when Iraq invaded Kuwait in 1990. At that point, we didn't know when the U.S. would respond or what would occur, but you knew something would happen. So every Friday, we sold off, and when nothing happened over the weekend, we'd go to rally on Monday. We kept going back and forth from July 1990 until the war started in earnest in February of 1991. However, it, we never made up the difference from what we lost on Friday. So during that period, the Dow sank from 3,000 to 2,368 as it almost went down more on Friday than we got covering on Monday. Hmm, sound familiar, right? Could we be in store for the same thing? I don't think it's crazy to expect more Friday sell-offs as we ponder what could happen with all of these major overhangs. We have a big earnings day this Friday. Honeywell, GE, Procter & Gamble, Lumberjack. Hopefully they can offset all of these fears, but hope it's not a strategy. I bring this up because you need to remember these Friday jitters as we make our way through each week. Until these issues cleared up, get cleared up somehow, if they even can be cleared up, the worries will linger. I'd love to be proven wrong here, but for the moment, let's assume we're going to keep repeating a more benign version of the pattern we got in 1990, where every Friday is a tale of woe. Every Monday rolls back some of those losses as the market breathes a sigh of relief if nothing catastrophic occurs. Much more mad money ahead with a potential proxy fight heating up the new brands. I'll tell you what it means for shareholders of the stock. Then Vistra Energy just completed its $1.7 billion merger of Dynagy, and they got it for a much lower price than I ever thought could happen. What does it mean for the stock going forward? I'm going to talk to the CEO. And spring's finally here. I'm eyeing one stock that could make the grass look greener for your portfolio that you've asked about when I turn in tonight's homework. So stick with Kramer. Me. I always like to say this is the most interactive show on television. So when you call in to ask me about a stock, I give you an answer. But sometimes the questions are a little more complicated than a straightforward buy or sell. For example, recently I've been asked a ton of questions, including on Twitter, about whether it's time to get back into Newell Brands ahead of its upcoming proxy fight and which way to vote if you do pick some up. For those of you who don't remember, Newell Brands is the company created by the merger of the old Newell Rubbermaid with Jordan two years ago. That deal, uh, it's, let's say it's created a Frankenstein's monster of an enterprise. You know them as Sharpie, Papermaid, Goody, Mr. Sketch, and Rubbermaid, not to mention all the Jordan brands like Mr. Coffee, Oster, Crockpot, Coleman, Outdoor Equipment, Rolling Spaceballs, and Yankee Candle. But you know what's even more complex than Newell Brands? The proxy battle at Newell Brands. Ha <laughs> ha, fooled you. So, 
before I answer the question, which side is right, let me paint you a picture of what's going on here, because, man, there's a lot to learn from this story about all stocks. You know, I like to do a teaching moment here. Right now, you got a bizarre situation where two groups of investors, one led by Carl Icahn, we've always respected his work, the other led by Starboard Value, we've respected them too, and they're fighting for control of Newell's future. Before you can understand where both sides are coming from, though, you need to know how we got to this place, this situation in the first place. For Newell Brands, everything started going wrong two years ago when they shelled out $15 billion for Jordan, a mismatch of different brands. CEO Mike Polk told a very compelling story on CNBC about all the value this deal could unlock. And I was always a big fan of Martin Franklin, who liked the deal very much, of course, the founder and chairman of the old Jordan, because Jordan stock was a multi-year winner for us. Like much of Wall Street, I was excited about the potential here. I believe the hype, even going so far as building a position in Newell Brands for my charitable trust. You can follow along by joining ActionAlertsPlus.com Club. Fortunately, we started taking profits in June of last, when the stock was at 54 and change, just a few days before it peaked. I didn't see anything wrong, though. My discipline saved me. Remember, I always tell you, bulls make money, bears make money, and pigs get slaughtered. One of those. Ever since last August, Newell reported a series of increasingly disappointing numbers. And started to look like Mike Polk might never, ever be able to deliver one of those ambitious forecasts he told us about. In early November, the company missed both top and bottom line estimates. Management cut their full-year forecast after already lowering their forecast in September as a response to the big hurricanes. Stock lost 25% of its value in response. Wow, that's that's how ugly a quarter it was. Fast forward to January, and Newell pre-announced some lousy numbers for the next quarter, too. I mean, holy cow. House of pain. Cutting its forecast still further, giving you some really ugly guidance for 2018. When you slash estimates three times in as many months, it tends to justifiably frighten investors. Baseball season, three strikes and you're out, except in corporate America, that is. Making things worse, Polk repeatedly overpromised and underdelivered uh, the opposite of you, Pot, okay? Including during appearances on this show. In response, three directors resigned, including Martin Franklin, whom I always consider a very important part of the story because he had such an amazing track record yard and such a big stake in the company. Newell also started talking about strategic initiatives that might help them turn things around, like selling off non-core businesses. By this point, though, the stock had fallen to the mid-20s, down more than 50% from where my charitable trust made its first sale. That's where the activists come in. First, on February 9th, Starboard Value launches a proxy fight against Newell with the aim of ousting the entire board of directors and Mike Polk, the CEO. Starboard wanted to bring back Martin Franklin and some other former Jordan executives, turn things around. Operating under the old Jordan-style holding company business model, I also basically unconnected brands. They don't have confidence in the current leadership. I don't blame them. Second, on March 1st, Carl Icahn takes the stage. We learned that he'd taken a large position in Newell, but initially didn't want to weigh in on the Starboard proxy fight, simply saying the stock was undervalued. Fast forward to March 19th, though, and Newell announces a cooperation agreement with Icahn. Company gives him five board seats, including letting him pick the chairman, and in exchange, Icahn backs management's board nominees at the company's upcoming annual meeting. I thought it was pretty generous considering Icahn only owns 6% of the company. Management's plan? They believe they can raise $10 billion by selling off various non-core businesses in order to focus on the brands with the highest margins, while finding all sorts of ways to cut costs and take market share. Wall Street was less than thrilled, though. Stock dropped uh, 6% on the news. <laughs> Initially, it looked like it was going to go up. Now, Starboard has remained critical of Newell's plans, but a few days after Icon's news, things became really, really complicated. Turns out three of the directors they wanted to nominate, including Martin Franklin, have now reconsidered. 
Rather than trying to take over Newell, these guys are hoping to acquire some of Newell's assets, create a, maybe a whole new company. Even without them, though, Starboard is sticking to its guns, calling Newell's deal with Icon, and I quote, a desperate attempt to hand outsized influence to one shareholder in order to entrench management and disenfranchise shareholders. In other words, everybody else who's in there got stuck. A vote for Icon's candidate is a vote to double down on the management team that's running this company in the ground. A vote for Starboard's candidate is a vote for a divided board of directors. Look, I think Starboard's candidates would make much, be really good for the business. They're very, they're high-quality people. And if, heaven forbid, I still own Newell for the Chapel Trust, I'd vote for Starboard Slate. They got a great tracker, especially at Darden, the parent of Olive Garden. However, I think that's the wrong question entirely. Instead, you need to take a step back and ask yourself, is it even worth being involved in brands or at least waiting for the next quarter. I think this next number is going to be a real doozy. In other words, what if both Icon and Starboard are wrong? First, they keep arguing the stock is undervalued. I wonder if it's a value trap. Sure, Newell seems cheap, but if the company can hit its earnings estimates, it's trading at less than 10 times this year's numbers. But you know what? That's a mighty big if. I don't have a lot of confidence in Newell's ability to meet its forecast, not after management's series of estimate cuts over the winter. Sadly, Mike Polk has been a severe disappointment as CEO, and though he's had some real bad luck, strikes me as crazy to believe he can deliver any longer. And look, it's not like this is a great retail landscape for Newell. It's not their time. They sell tons of stuff to, say, Toys R Us, which is going under, and you better believe that liquidation will hurt the quarter. They also had a big fight with Office Depot, and a company that sells Sharpies doesn't need to get into a brawl with another company that's hanging on its fingernails. Second, Newell's other saving grace is its dividend. The stock currently supports a 3.5% yield. Management just raised the payout last year. But if the next quarter is horrendous, I bet people will start questioning the dividend, too, even as the debt situation short-term is not that onerous. Finally, both sides here have embraced the idea of asset sales, but it might be hard to dump $10 billion with the brands at decent prices. Basically, the Icon plan is to undo the Jordan deal, except for a lot less uh, than they paid for Jordan. But I don't think there's a logical buyer here, which means they'll end up selling these businesses piecemeal. Who knows how much money they'll actually get? I'm also concerned about what I've heard from Martin Franklin. He wants to buy $4 billion worth of assets from Newell, but the company has said they won't consider selling them to him. That's crazy. They need the money. Why would they tell a potential bidder to take a hike? He may be lowballing them, but it's a burden to hand. Plus, Franklin has sold his whole stake in Newell. He knows this business better than anybody. And if he's not interested, you know what? Call me uninterested. So I can't tell you to buy the stock in good conscience, at least not until I see the next quarter. Bottom line, not every war is worth fighting, people. Regardless of who wins the Newell brand's proxy fight, I think this is a situation with very little near-term upside. And it's a total battleground. I think Starboard is the better slate of directors, but for the moment, this stock is simply not worth owning. Maybe later at lower prices, but not yet. Not now. Jeff in Indiana. Jeff. Hey, I got a question for you. I heard sure. that Kroger is planning on hiring thousands of new employees. I bought their stock a couple years ago for 38 bucks, and then when Amazon purchased Whole Food, Kroger stock t- took a nosedive down to the low 20s. I'm just wondering if I ought to hang on to it or bail on it. Uh, you know what? I, I think that Kroger's trouble, but not because of Kroger. Kroger's a good operator, but you got two German operators coming in and people just thinking about Amazon. Well, Amazon, I've been to Whole Foods a bunch of times. Man, they're doing a lot of great changes. So my instinct is to say that even though Kroger hired those people, I, I don't see a lot of upside to it. And I think I'm being uh, very uh, ambassador-like. Ron in Illinois, Ron! Booyah, Jim. How you doing? I'm having a good day. How about I'm, you? Oh, great day. 
I'm calling because back in late February, you had a segment on General Mills' purchase of Blue Buffalo where you felt that they had been unjustly punished for their purchase. And being a dog lover whose pet and best friend eats Blue Buffalo, I felt that you were right and bought a significant position. Now, we all know that a couple weeks later, General Mills announced earnings that missed the analysts' estimates, and they took another beating. So my question to you is, at this price point, uh, where they're at right now, I think down around 45, would you rate them as a hold? Should I no, hold this No, no. They I... did a very big – first of all, thank you. Uh, I'm a dog lover, too. I was uh, early. I don't think I'm wrong. You could say, well, Jim, you're obviously wrong. The stock fell five. Here's the problem. They had to do an equity offering in order to be able to make their balance sheet better. The yield is 4.3. They paid a lot for the company, but I think they're reinvent for, for Blue Buff. But I think they're reinventing it. So my take is, yes, it's a buy, 4% yield. And I think that Jeff just hemorrhaging. Jeff Harmonick, look, the guy has got to grow the company. That acquisition grows the company. So I am in favor of it. I'm not backing away. Okay, a lot to learn from this Newell story. And one of those things is that not every war is worth fighting. So you got to stay away from this one for now. Much more mad money, including my exclusive with the CEO of Vistra Energy, which is knocking on the all-time high. Then the company just completed a very complicated and years-long buyout process. I'm going to find out what it means for shareholders. Could there be a dividend in the offing? Then good news if the dog ate your homework. I did it for you, and I think it could make you some money. I like some of these questions that people are putting to me. And all your calls, rapid fire, in tonight's edition of The Lightning Round. So stick with Kramer. Tomorrow, kick off the trading day with Squawk on the Street. Live from Post 9 at the NYSE. I didn't say who I was, and they obviously didn't. Whatever. I'm, you know, as my wife says, you're nobody, so what the hell? But it was like, are you kidding me? It all starts at 9 a.m. Eastern. What do we do with a company like Vistra Energy in this environment? Here's a big Texas-based utility that just last week closed on its transformational $1.7 billion acquisition of Dynagy, which gives them some tremendous retail and power generation assets in the Northeast. Thanks to this deal, Vistra says it's now the lowest-cost integrated power company in the industry. And the stock's, well, just shy of its 52-week high. Now, Wall Street tends to shun utility stocks in a period of rising interest rates. People talking about a correction in this group because higher rates make their big dividends look less attractive by comparison. Vista doesn't pay a dividend, which is one of the reasons the stock's been holding up so of late. Uh, the other reason being that this is a growth stock masquerading as utility, and I like that. So could the stock have more room to run? Let's take a close look with Curtis Morgan. He's the president and CEO of Vistra Energy, VST. Get a better sense of where his company's headed, and now that it's finished acquiring Dynagy. Mr. Morgan, welcome back to Mad Money. Hey, Jim. Thanks for having me again. Really appreciate it, uh, as always. Well, I've got to tell you, uh, Kurt, this is a very exciting story because you are the low-cost producer, but I think a lot of our viewers are going to say, well, wait a second. I like utilities for dividends. That could eventually come down the road after you've paid down some debt, correct? That is correct. Uh, and, we, you know, the one thing about our business, Jim, is that we generate significant free cash flow after servicing debt and after uh, maintenance capital on the power plants. So we're a different story than other uh, commodity-based uh, energy companies in that we convert a lot of our earnings to free cash flow, which gives us a lot 
of uh, flexibility in terms of what we do with capital allocation, uh, including uh, long-term dividends. And we believe that is something that we will take a hard look at. But I think debt levels are probably the biggest priority for most companies in our, in our situation with commodity-based business and with the volatility that's associated with commodities. So we'll be focused on that first, but dividends are not far behind. All right, so Kurt, one of the reasons I, I was trying to figure out, okay, how did this stock go up so much? It's been such a strong performer. Obviously, Dynegy's good, but you're in an area of the country that I think people don't recognize, particularly in the Northeast, that is really enjoying a great boom. Texas, it's been really unbelievable, hasn't it? It really has. I mean, the great state of Texas continues to grow at upwards of 2% a year, which is more than double most other markets in the U.S. right now, especially with demand-side management that's going on uh, in the country and conservation. So, and we, about 50% of our earnings will still come from Texas with our big retail business where we've got, you know, 1.7 million customers and a very strong generation asset base that produces a lot of cash flow. So that, you know, that's a very important part of our story and will continue to be. I am sure people will look at uh, where your fleets are, what you have. You've got some coal, you've got some nuclear, you've got some natural gas. And they'll say, you know what? Maybe they're going to get a break because President Trump seems to favor coal. Can coal have a renaissance or is it just a bleed off? You know, I, I don't believe it's going to have a renaissance as much as I believe it still needs to be a part of the energy infrastructure around power. Uh, I believe that, that other sources are now catching up with coal in terms of the overall cost, and that includes renewables, solar and wind, and batteries, Jim, are not far behind. And so our company has to look forward. We've shut down 4,200 megawatts of coal in Texas because they just couldn't make it in today's world, and we've invested in a 180-megawatt a solar plant in Texas as well, and we continue to look at other renewables as well as batteries. So I think it's on its way out. Uh, I know that others may not like that, but I do believe that it's on its way out. I was trying to figure in your conference call, you talked about how you were immersed in batteries. Obviously, when I think of batteries, I think of Elon Musk. I think of Tesla. What does it mean to be immersed in batteries, particularly in California? Well, I believe that what's happening now is with the intermittent nature of renewables, uh, when you combine batteries, uh, you know, with the intermittent nature of renewables, you can create a more stable uh, uh, electric product. Uh, and immersing the, you know, the power grid with batteries gives a lot of flexibility around the grid itself, as well as the generation that uh, supports the grid. And so I think batteries just open up a very different world uh, and they're becoming more and more cost effective. OK, uh, just one last question. I, I know deregulation, uh, maybe coal, no renaissance, but we do have a different EPA. What does a different EPA mean for a growth utility like Vistra? You know, I think there's a big change in just how we approach our business uh, with the EPA. Uh, there was certainly uh, a feel of I got you. Uh, they were con continually looking to try to trip up companies and look for ways uh, to really force companies that use fossil fuels, in particular coal, uh, you know, out of business. This EPA is actually trying to work with us and trying to work with companies that are in fossil fuels, which, by the way, are still going to be very important uh, as part of the power uh, solution in this country for the next 10 to 15 years uh, at least. 
And so we just see a very different way of doing business with the EPA. They're trying to work with us. That doesn't mean that they're easy on us. That just means that there's a very different approach in terms of working with us. Well, you've obviously done great for your shareholders. I think it continues. I want to thank Curtis Morgan, president and CEO of Vistra Energy VST, for coming on the show. Thank you so much, sir. Thank you, Jim. All right, we have money. We'll be back after the break. It is time! It's over the lightning round! Let's see what we're talking about. Let's And then the lightning round is over. Are you ready? Skate down. It's time for the lightning round. Let's start with Christian, New Jersey. Christian. Hey, Jim. How's it going? Right, it's going uh, well, my friend. How about you? Pretty good. Uh, I'm just curious what you think about uh, Spotify's stock price. That being a lot of people freaked out today. They're saying to me, come on, Jim, what's going on? Can we take a longer-term view? I think this stock is a bye-bye-bye. Let's go to Matt in California. Matt. Jim, my stock has gone down about 25% in two weeks on bad news. Today's good news only cost it to go up a couple of dollars. When will its pipeline launch? Alkermes PLC stock up to three digits. Uh, which one? Alkermes PLC. Oh, Alkermes. Oh, my. I thought the stock was up five and it was correct. Uh, Richard Pops has got a major medical depression stock uh, uh, drug, and I think it's worth definitely because the FDA is going to review it. Bye, bye, bye. It's worth a buy. I really like it here. By the way, let's just understand each other. J&J, which reports tomorrow, has a new ketamine drug that is uh, past phase two, uh, and I think that is going to be remarkable. You know I like J&J. Let's go to Steve in Georgia. Steve. Hey, Kramer, how you doing? This is Stephen from Atlanta. All right. Hey, I'm, I'm calling about a um, a company called Gurn. With our figures, Gurn. It's a um, medical bio, small cap. That you know, look, we don't buy that. If we're going to do that, we're going to draw We're going to do Illumina. We're going to do Thermo Fisher. we got to stick with high quality. That's what the show's about. Let's go to Atish in Illinois. Atish. Hey, Jim. How are you? All right. How about you? I'm following a company called uh, Sorento SRNE. Wondering what do you feel about that? Everything it tells me about is that this is precisely the kind of stock that is speculative that I like. We've seen too many takeovers in this area for me to dismiss this one out of hand. So as a, as a spec, I'm blessing it. Dorothy in New Jersey. Dorothy. Hi. Hi, Jim. Dorothy, what's up? I want to know what you think of my tech. These are real. This is really too speculative. This character recognition software, I have always felt that that was too speculative. Uh, I'm not going to be in on that. By the way. Listen, you want to get chips that work like that help you there uh, like it with sound. I think you buy NVIDIA. Boy, NVIDIA has been down and out lately, and I think it's not right that it is. Thomas in Nevada. Thomas. Yo, Kramer. About a year ago, I was watching uh, the show, and you had the CEO of AKS, AK Steel Holding, and I thought your questions were very relevant. I liked his answers. So uh, within a few days, I bought some, and it's done nothing but tanked. What's going on, Kramer? Well, my problem here is, is that uh, they're not the low-cost producer. That's what Nucor is. By the way, NUE reports April 19. I think this is one that we told uh, when I did my conference call with Charitable Club last week. I said Nucor could be really fantastic on the upside. NUE is the way you want to go. Let's go to John in California. John. Hey, Professor Kramer. Booyah. All right, what's going on? Uh, Sage Therapeutics. You know what? This is, um, I I don't really understand what is going on with Sage now, whether something is 
is happening that is difficult for me to fathom. You know, I think that some of these, they canceled the, the, themselves in a, in a conference. I, we're going to have to wait to see. I want to see what happens to Sage. I can't bless until I know more. Shane in Nebraska. Shane. Booyah. Booyah. Abby. Abby. All right, Abby, uh, you know, they, boy, they had one major miss and they took the darn stock apart. Now I don't like what they did to Bristol Myers this morning. That's why I want to stay away from controversy. I think Merck's the big winner over this weekend, and I'm going to stick with Merck. And by the way, I happen to like, I know everybody hates Eli Lilly. I mean, despises it, except for me. I like what they're doing in so many different drugs. It's at 80 bucks. Uh, that's why the travel show shows at LLY. Let's go to Andrew in Virginia. Andrew. Booyah, Jim. Booyah. Thank you for all you do for us. Oh, you're quite welcome. My stock is KKR. Yeah, I know the distribution's up and down, but you know it's not up and down. Henry Kravis, who runs that. Henry Kravis will work until he doesn't want to work anymore. And you know what? As long as he's at the helm, I'm a buyer. I have respected him for generations. KKR, safe with me. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is the conclusion of the Lightning Round. The Lightning Round is sponsored by TD Ameritrade. Every now and then someone calls in with a question that I'm not prepared to answer. Maybe it's a company I'm not familiar with. Maybe I just want to do some more homework before giving my opinion. I hate to cuff things here. Either way, I do the research and come back to you because that's what Mad Money is all about, and I always encourage you to hit me with the toughest. So let's do some spring cleaning here. On March 1st, Russell, New Jersey, asked me about Site One Landscape Supply, S-I-T-E for you home gamers. I told him I need to do some more digging on this one. As the name implies, Site One is a distributor of landscaping supplies. In fact, it's the largest wholesale distributor of landscaping supplies in the whole darn country. More than 450 branches across North America. The company came public in May of 2016. Since then, the stock has been a stellar performer. It's nearly quadrupling from its IPO price in less than two years. Lately, though, Site One stock has been acting a little toppy. Shares are currently flat for the year, and when Russell called a month and a half ago, the darn thing had just sold off substantially in the wake of an imperfect quarter. Since then, the stock has come roaring back right along with the rest of the market. Now, Site One has spent the last few years making tons of acquisitions. Last year alone, they did eight deals. Basically, they're trying to roll up the landscaping supply space, and so far, it has, well, it seems like they're doing a pretty darn good job. In short, I like the fundamentals, and I think the sell off in response to the latest quarter was an overreaction. The numbers themselves were fine. Management's earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation, and amortization forecast, tad light. But here's the problem. Site 1 is an expensive stock. Trades at 40 times next, uh, this year's earnings estimates, 40 times. 15% long-term growth rate. It's hard to justify that kind of valuation. Hey, listen, even if you look out to the 2020 period, it's still trading at 26 times earnings. That's pricey. My verdict, I've been willing to give Site 1 my blessing, just not at these levels. But if you find the story intriguing, feel free to put this name on your shopping list and then wait for the inevitable market-wide pullbacks that we keep getting to give you a better opportunity at a substantially lower price. Next up on March 8th, Reed in Texas asked me about Every Holdings, EVRI, and I said I'd get back to him. Every, well, Every is really speculative. Uh, too speculative for me. It's a small-cap company that makes gambling and payment technology for the uh, casino industry. Think slot machines, video lot, uh, lottery terminals, advanced ATM machines. They even have their own software that helps casinos comply with federal money laundering regulations. I got to tell you, every stock has been a roller coaster, surging up and doing 250% last year. Wow, what a year. But then pulling back this year, it's down uh, uh, 16% year to date. 
As much as I like the casino business, and you know I do, every holdings has had a very rough time lately. Come reported a real mix quarter a month ago with plenty of negatives, like much larger than expected losses. At the end of the day, every's in an extreme boom and bust business. Stock roars higher in boom periods and then gets annihilated during the inevitable bust. I'm not saying uh, that's what's going on here. I am saying that every holdings is a way too risky proposition for me. Hey, you know what? If you want to bet on the casino business, I prefer to do it with stocks that don't feel quite so much like a game roulette. Something like my fave, MGM Resorts. Finally, <coughs> excuse me, on March 20th, Bill and Marilyn called in about Silicon, that's an M, S-I-L-C, and said, I, I, I said, man, I got to do some more homework on this one. Silicon is a networking and data infrastructure play with stock that's been put through the meat grinder of late. Specifically, Silicon is all about improving the performance and efficiency of cloud and data center environments. Hey, we like that, right? Company helps you get more out of these big warehouses full of servers. The idea of this technology reduces or eliminates bottlenecks and transfer points within the data center. So far, so good. In theory, interesting concept, which is why the stock was such a great performer in 2016, 2017. How many great performers there were. But so far this year has been, let's just say, brutal for Silicon. The house of pain. On March 14th, the company disclosed that a major client had canceled a gigantic contract and the stock got pulverized, losing nearly 40% of its value during a two-day sell-off. And look, this was not an overreaction. The contract in question was Silicon's largest ever design win. To make matters worse, following that announcement, management suspended the dividend to support the company's working capital needs, causing a huge cohort of investors to just turn on the stock. And who can blame them? Ever since then, Silicon has been bouncing around the mid-30s. It, it, it dipped another 5% today to $35. Here's the thing. After the sell-off, the stock is now well below where it was trading before the company even signed that big contract that it just lost. In other words, perhaps Silicon has finally at last been punished enough. Silicon is a real company with real profits. It sells for just 18 times next, uh, this year's earnings. But I'd love to have these guys on the show, by the way. Does that make it cheap? Well, it depends on how they uh, bounce back from losing such a major slug of business. But 18 times with a tech company that doesn't sound like it has a lot of problems with China, like some of the things that the president's even doing this evening, I'm getting interested. I've got given you my permission to buy this thing on a pullback to 32. But I hesitate because you know what? The company is very, very small. It's a small cap. $270 million market cap. That means Silicon is only worth considering for speculation. That said, this is indeed the kind of stock that does indeed get cheaper as it goes lower. Although if it goes much lower from these levels, it will be too small for me to talk about on air. Stick with Craig. All right, after close, Netflix does it again, even though it was upgraded just on Friday by Deutsche Bank, even though there were multiple price target increases, even though people said that perhaps it could be a blowout quarter, you got an even bigger blowout quarter. And what happens? The stock surges one more time. Congratulations, Reed Hastings, for just doing a remarkable job for your shareholders. You are the best. Like I said, it's always a bull market summer. Probably start to find it just for you right here on Mad Money. I'm Jim Cramer, and I will see you tomorrow. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It offers flexible spending capacity that adapts to your business. You can also earn up to $395 in annual statement credits on eligible purchases at select business merchants. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard.